Hey, if you want to take your Bible and open, I know it's going to fall open to Joshua automatically, but go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you got one of the bulletins as you, uh, as you came in this morning and you look on the back and you brought your magnifying glass, you should be able to, uh, to take advantage of some of the notes that I tried to cram in there on the back and you can uh, follow along if that's of, of help to you. A couple of things as we get started this morning. First, if this is one of your first times here with us at Emmaus, we do the response time in different ways at the end of the service. We'll uh, we'll shake it up from time and time how we, how we do that. Most of the time we end the way that we are this morning where we will stand and sing a final psalm together declaring our worship before the Lord. During that psalm we'll take up our offering, not to make light of taking up the offering, but because that in of itself is one of our responses to God that we are giving of ourselves. And so during that final psalm we'll have a chance to do that. You'll also have a chance to come for prayer during that final psalm, and maybe your response during that time is as the offering plates come around, there's that guest card in the seat back in front of you. That will be your chance to be able to turn that in. If during the sermon you, you know, maybe you're not even thinking about the sermon, you're just thinking about, I really need somebody to pray for me. I have questions about the things of God that I need to ask somebody. Your act of faith this morning might just be to fill that card out and put it in the offering plate when it comes around at the end, and you'll have a chance to, uh, to do that, to respond to God's work in your life, wherever you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Uh, last week, so we, we've been studying through the book of Joshua. Last week, we settled in on this question of holy war, how there's a lot of war that happens in the book of Joshua, and God sends the people to... Uh, to take care of, to wipe out, to destroy completely certain areas as he is taking his people into the promised land. And so we stopped and we talked about God's character. What do we learn about God from those passages? Where do we see that he is good and patient and merciful and he's also just and sovereign and powerful and he deals with sin decisively? So when we study the Bible, the first question we ask is, what does that teach me about God? And we, and we did that last week. We're going to take that same topic, and this week we're going to ask, how do I respond to that? How, what does that say to my life, to my relationship with God, to how I live in the world? So last week was God's character. Who is God in relation to these war passages in Joshua and throughout the Old Testament? This week is, and then how does that impact my life? How do we respond to that as the, as the people of God? Most of the time when we meet on a Sunday morning, I'm most comfortable when we drop anchor in a particular passage of Scripture. And we're going to unpack that and think about it. This morning we're going to skip the rock um, a little bit. I'm not particularly good at skipping rocks, so it only skipped four points uh, in, your, in your sermon this morning. But we're going to skip the rock. We're going to jump across Scripture. But, but lest you think it's Scripture light, we're probably going to read more Scripture this morning than we would in almost any other service. But what we're doing is we're trying to piece together across the Bible what is my response to God's character in relation to these holy war passages? And so we're going we're gonna to deal with them kind of one at a time, reading a lot of scripture together, maybe not spending as much time on each one, uh, but, but just kind of thinking about them, God, where are you leading us? And so uh, that's, my, that's my introduction. I tell you what, let's, let's pray, and we're going to jump right into 1 Samuel 17 with our first point here in just a second. 
Father, I pray that as we've gathered here, God, thank you for the families that are here. God, thank you for our kids that are sitting in here with us as they're engaging their hearts and minds as we read the story of David and Goliath and immediately that's gonna make sense to them. We need to hear that as adults. Father, I pray that we would engage our hearts and our minds both. Father, that you would break chains of oppression. Father, if there are people coming in here with very deep pain, dealing with things personally, and they think, I I really don't need this this morning, I need something else, God, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would show them how your power and your mercy that is shown in these war passages is a power and a mercy that speaks directly to each of our lives. God, that you come to us in our pain, you come to us in our brokenness, you come to us in our sin, and you bring healing, and you bring hope, and in Christ alone we find life and salvation and victory. And so God, remind us of that this morning. Show us across the scope of the Bible who you are and what you're up to. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you could, we could invite a child up on stage right now, and they could probably give us this story, but it's good to be able to read these verses together. So we're going to read the story of David and Goliath, starting out from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Not going to read every verse in chapter 17, but we're going to read most of the verses there. Starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Asaka in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion called Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze." And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, skip down to verse 32. Um, Now obviously there's a lot going on there. There's the back and forth. They're going to search out who's going to do this. Skip down to verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, so David's speaking of himself here, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. He must be 40. He's a man. So, uh, ha-ha, you like that? Yeah. Verse 37, verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And all Saul can say to David at this point is, Go and may the Lord 
be with you. Let's skip down to verse 46. This day, says David, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What I want you to see from the story of David and Goliath, that there's a good chance that most of us had a fair idea about walking in here. The story of David and Goliath is the holy war story of the Bible. What you see in the book of Joshua is portrayed most clearly in the story of David and Goliath. What you have with Goliath early on is you find out that he is part of the Philistines. The Philistines are directly connected to the Canaanites who are involved in the book of Joshua as the people of Israel are going into the promised land. As you, as you track their progression going into the promised land, you find that geographically, as they're approaching this valley, as they're getting ready to take on the Philistines, in a sense, this is the final battle for the Israelites to face as they ultimately take the promised land. And so in a sense, you have in the David and Goliath story a culmination and a summary of all these holy war stories that get started in the book of Joshua and then continue to go with the people as they carry out what God has called them to do. And so when Goliath is presented here, he is the Canaanites. And we learned last week that the Canaanites represent empire. That they are this group of people who have been gathered together in such a way that they exist for their own purposes. That they are a people that are bent on aggression. That they are seeking to expand their empire, to protect their empire. That is all about who they are and how they can protect themselves. It has nothing to do with the things of God. Goliath represents that perfectly. And what you're able to do at that point is you're able to draw a thread throughout the Bible that goes from the Garden of Eden, I don't need the things of God, I'll live for myself, my own way. It runs through the Tower of Babel, I'll build a tower, I'll make a city, I'll make my name great. It goes through the Canaanites, straight through Goliath, straight through the Babylonians, straight to Rome And here in just a second, we're going to find ourselves in the book of Revelation. Because what you have here is a continual effort for people to set themselves up as an empire for their own purposes, to live according to their own plans, and to shut themselves off from the things of God. And so you have this continual thrust, this continual thread throughout the Bible of what it looks like for people to be presented as empire, living for themselves. Probably the clearest example is going to be Tower of Babel, and Goliath, both tall structures, this idea of being built up to be able to handle things yourself. David comes along, obviously representing the people of God, representing the Israelites, who don't come with the same strength, but they have seen God rescue them over and over and over again. And so what you find is another thread that goes from Abraham 
Because Abraham and the story of the Tower of Babel and Genesis 11 and 12 are meant to be a particular battle, but it just plays out on the pages of the Bible, Genesis 11 and 12. So it goes from Abraham to Moses to Joshua to David. And if you take Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and David, who's the culmination of all that they represent? Well, I'm sad to tell you it's not me. Uh, it's Jesus. That there's this thread of empire that runs through the Bible that goes from Garden of Eden all the way through Goliath, all the way through the Babylonians, all the way up to Rome. There's another even better thread that runs from Abraham to Moses to Joshua to David to Jesus. And so Jesus has come to defeat to tear down the empires of the world and instead to bring in the kingdom of God. So when you read in your New Testament, it talks about the Gospels and it talks about the kingdom of God is at hand. What is happening is Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. This is why he taught his people to pray, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is invading the empires of this world that have set themselves up against God. And Jesus is making war on the empires of this world in order to bring in the kingdom of God. And so you fast forward to the book of Revelation at the very end. You get to Revelation chapter 18. And these verses are up on the screen. But I want you to see how this culminates with the book of Revelation that kind of pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and shows you what God is up to. Revelation 18. If your Bible has those fancy kind of subheadings before, mine says the fall of Babylon. Remember, Canaanites, Babylon, Rome, empires of the world. Revelation 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Jump over to chapter 19, those first couple of verses of 19. After this, Revelation 19.1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So you can see there, uh, the point there on number one is that ultimately the empire strikes out. Ultimately this effort to build up the empire will not stand. But it won't stand because any one of us has overcome that empire it will stand because Jesus Christ is victorious. That the sin that's set in place in the Garden of Eden that went through the Canaanites, or Tower of Babel, went through the Canaanites, went through the Babylonians, went through the Romans, went through every empire that set it against the things of God is destroyed because 
of Jesus Christ because of the cross and the resurrection. What makes these empires so dangerous, and I think I put this on your notes as well, what makes these empires so dangerous is they oppress the weak economically, socially, politically. You can see there in Revelation 18, 5, or 18, uh, 3 earlier, it talks about the merchants. It talks about sexual immorality. It talks about all these things. An empire has to hold on to its power by oppressing the weak. And so with empires, you get slavery. With empires, you get incredible disparity between the very rich and the very poor. With empire, it's all about driving people to the edges so you're always pitted against someone. Empires have no room for respect of human dignity, dignity, have no uh, respect for one another. You can't have any dialogue. It's just you're over here and you yell at the people on the other side and they have to drive people away so you're always kept apart from other people. Empires thrive on impressing, oppressing people economically, socially, politically. And so as the people of God, knowing that Jesus Christ has defeated the empires of the world, we have to be so careful that we're not drawn to that same power. There's an allure of power. There's an allure of wealth. There's an allure of giving yourself to a state or giving yourself to a group. This is what made Christianity so profound in the first century. It was so obvious in the first century that the Roman Empire was winning. If you were going to pick sides in the first century, you went with Goliath. You went with the Romans. You didn't go with the Christians. It was so obvious that they were losing. But what the book of Revelation does is it strips back that curtain. It says, no, 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 make sure you see the big picture. Make sure you see what God has really been up for to since creation. Make sure you know where this story is headed. That the empire will not survive. That the creator will not be mocked. That he will bring justice. That he will establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will not be of the things of this world. It won't be an economic, political, social powerhouse meant to hold on to its own things. And so as the church, what's our response there? We learn to pray. We learn to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. We learn in the book of Revelation to pray, come Lord Jesus. You read the newspapers or the internet or watch very much news, you get really good at praying, come Lord Jesus. That there are empires there are sources of evil set up in our world that we realize that in our own strength we can never eradicate. But this is not the end of the story. Genesis to Revelation says, trust me, the empire will not survive. Look to the things of Jesus. He has overcome all of those things. So how do we respond to that as God's people? Well, the book of Matthew gives us an interesting place to go in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and I have a hope and a plan that in 2019, hold your breath, but in 2019, we're really going to spend a lot of time with the Sermon on the Mount, and so uh, we'll come back to this, but right now I just want to put these verses in front of you. Matthew chapter 5, they'll be on the screen, but, but verses 38 and 39. You have heard 
that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Oh my. So in a world where it's all about building up your identity and protecting your possessions to protect your empire, here comes Jesus Christ in to bring victory. But how does his victory come? Does it come through military oppression? No, it comes through the cross. It comes through suffering. It comes through laying down your life, giving up your life in order to find life. And so how do the people of God respond to these stories of war? They turn the other cheek. And immediately, I know you want to argue with me on that, and that's okay, because we're, we're going to think this through. They turn the other cheek. Because when I have been created in the image of God, and I have been rescued by one who gave up on his life on the cross, I don't spend my life worried about my reputation. I don't spend my life trying to build up my empire. I don't spend my life trying to hold on to my possessions. You want my coat? Take it. It doesn't matter. The creator of the universe who holds Mars in place can give me another coat. I don't have to hold on to that. I'm not building up my own empire. And so I turn the other cheek. I deal with personal oppression. I may not have the things that everybody else has, but it doesn't matter because I know what true victory is and it's not found in those things. It's found in living for the kingdom of God. You think, well, maybe that's just in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, it's not. Uh, Romans chapter 12. Go over to Romans chapter 12. Starting down in about verse, let me find my verse. I think it's around verse 18. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Tell you what, let's back up to verse 17. Uh, Repay, so Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, that's a really important verse in the Bible, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you're reading the stories of, of Joshua and you're trying to make sense, okay, how do I live in response to those? Well, Matthew 5 and Romans 12 is a really important place to start. And you find out it's all about vengeance is not mine. I don't respond to the book of Joshua to say, I'm going to go to war against all the things that are set up against God. It, it starts with me realizing I've got to turn the other cheek. I'm not living for my reputation, for my empire, for my possessions. I'm going to live in a way that shows I really do trust the salvation of God. But does that lead to complete pacifism? Does that lead to complete nonviolence. Immediately we go to questions about, well, what if somebody breaks into my house, Owen? Do, do, I, just, do I just turn the other cheek and let that go? What about, what about all of the evil in the world? Is, is there room for just war theory? 
Is there room for making sense of how the people of God respond when we live in a nation? Well, there are two streams in Christianity, well-respected streams of Christianity. There is a stream of Christianity uh, that is pacifist. Uh, you, you think about the Mennonites and the Amish, primarily that stream of Christianity. But equally so, you can make a very strong case that there is place for a just war theory. How, how do people respond? How do we live in a world where there's evil? How do we respond? Do we always just turn the other cheek? No, we turn the cheek, but we also protect the weak. Um, and that's not just a cheesy rhyme. It's something that helps us make sense of this. We turn the cheek if we're being attacked. If it's our reputation, if it's our possessions, if it's our empire on the line, yeah, we, turn the, we turn the other cheek. If we see those who are weak and pushed to the side being oppressed, we don't allow evil to stand in those situations. Because one thing you learn clearly from Scripture is it forces us to take evil seriously. And one of the things I'm concerned about sometimes is in our Christian response, especially in some form, not every form, but some forms of pacifism, it just doesn't take the presence of evil seriously. It's almost like telling somebody, you're not really sick, you just feel like you're sick. No, no, sickness is real in this world. Those people aren't really evil. No, evil is real in this world. And, and I don't think we're called just to sit by and watch that happen. We're called to protect the weak. If there's a child who's being oppressed, if there's a child who's living in a world that they don't have a home, we don't just turn the other cheek and say, I hope it works out for that child. We come to protect the weak. Where do you find this in, in the New Testament? Well, funny enough, you find it in the very next verse in the book of Romans. Right after Paul has said all those things at the end of chapter 12, Look at how chapter 13 starts. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What you begin to find here is God has instituted government in such a way that it protects the peace of the people. Um, I, I put on your notes, I think, the word shalom. That idea that a good government put in place by God, should protect the shalom, the, the peace, the stability of a group of people, and then allow for their flourishing, allow them to live fully in the world that God's created. And so if that's not happening, if there's not peace, if there's not an opportunity for people to flourish, then we step in and say, no, those are good things that we need to provide. I heard a great uh, interview this last week with James Lankford. Uh, he did an interview with the folks down at the Village Church in Dallas just talking about, as a Christian, how do you engage in politics? Do we run the other way and, and, and close our eyes? And Lankford has a really powerful answer to that where he simply says no, that we are called to engage because we want to protect the weak, because we want to create a society in which people are not coerced, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, but where there's a situation that the gospel can flourish and people can see that on display. 
And so those of you that serve in law enforcement and military, I know you run right up against this, and this is in no way theory. This, this hits home in, in all the most intimate ways. But what does it look like that you've given yourself to serve your country not out of worship of that nation, not building up that empire, but saying, I want to be someone who protects the weak. I want to be someone who's involved in creating shalom, creating that peace so people can flourish with the hopes that they're always turning to the one who is truly king of kings and lord of lords. We don't serve country in order to build up empire. We serve country in order that there's shalom, there's peace, there's flourishing, and each of us does that in our own ways as a citizen. So the first thing I want you to hear when we talk about holy war in the Bible is that the empire always strikes out. Our response to that is we turn the cheek when we're personally insulted, but we always protect the weak. That leads to number three. What do you do with some of these other war passages? Go to the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is going to be toward the end of your New Testament. If you've got your phone and you want to navigate there, probably the most famous war passage in the New Testament, most likely is Ephesians chapter 6. Well, maybe second most famous. The, the book of Revelation, which is actually an anti-violence book because God's going to take care of everything, but that's probably the most famous. Ephesians chapter 6, though, gets right to the core of this. We're not going to read this whole section about the armor of God, uh, but, but I do want you to see the way it begins. So we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 10. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What you begin to get at here is the concept of spiritual warfare. And why is this point so, so important here? If you don't have point three that we're talking about this morning about Ephesians 6 and spiritual warfare, and you just stop at point two, please don't miss this key into what we're trying to catch here. In point two, the problem is always out there. I'm always fighting to get something else, another person, another entity. The problem's out there. They have attacked me. I've got to go after them. What point three forces us to realize is we too are part of the problem. That the evil, the sin, is not just out there, but I, when I look at my own heart, too often I find signs of sin and rebellion against God. And so what point three protects us against is I'm always fighting against the people out there. Point three says, uh, I better look deep inside myself because there is spiritual warfare going on in my own life in my own heart, and it's not a battle against any other person. It's not a battle against any other nation. We take Joshua 7, the story of Achan from a couple of weeks ago, and tie it right into what we're talking about here. The problem for the church, and and let me just state this as bluntly as we can, the, the problem for the church is not Islam It's not secularism, it's not atheism, it's not any force out there. It's what's in here. It's us looking in the camp, looking in our own hearts, saying, yes, there's a battle, but it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against my pride. 
It's a battle against my anger. It's a battle against my lust. It's a battle against my lying. That's where that battle is being set up. And so what the spiritual warfare calls us to is calls us to holiness and endurance. The greatest battle that you will fight in your life as a Christian is the battle for holy endurance. That I would continue to seek the things of God. That I would battle against those things that were against my flesh and that I would keep going. I'll tell people a lot of times when they meet with me maybe for, for counseling or things like that, the greatest act of spiritual courage sometimes you have is just to keep going. To take the next step, to get up the next day and keep fighting. And we realize when we say keep fighting, we're not talking about fighting against someone else. We're talking about battling against the enemy who wants to take the legs out of your spiritual race. And so what does spiritual warfare look like? We sometimes make spiritual warfare in this very strange, that must be for super spiritual people. No, spiritual warfare is I'm pursuing holiness and I will keep going. I will endure. There's a couple of other places in the New Testament this shows up. Um, Second Timothy, which you're really close to when you're in the book of Ephesians. You just turn over to the right a little bit. Second Timothy chapter 2. There's a surprising reference to being a soldier. This is the reason I wanted to pick out this verse. Trying to find those verses in the New Testament that reference war or, or uh, being a soldier. You find one of these in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What that shows you, it shows you the role of discipline in spiritual growth. Spiritual warfare reminds you that this is not a game. That when you woke up this morning, when you came here to gather for worship, this is not just a game that we are playing. That we are at war, but we're not at war with the culture we're at war with an enemy who would want to take away our faith, who would want to take away our worship, who would want to cut the legs out of our spiritual race. And so we've come here saying there's a discipline to this. There's a courage that is involved in this spiritual warfare. Jump ahead to 1 Peter. You're, you're really close to 1 Peter by this point when you're getting close to the end of the New Testament. But you scroll down to your phone just a little bit. Um, you go to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, we're looking at the very end of that book, First Peter. Uh, verse 8, let's look at verse 8 and 9 here. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What you find in this is in spiritual warfare, we need one another. How do you pursue holiness in your life? How do you keep going when everything inside of you says to give up? You need other people around you. Couples, spouses. Your spouse is never the enemy. There is an enemy who wants to destroy your marriage and your spouse is never that enemy. Friends, the other friend 
and that friendship that's right on the edge is not the enemy. There's an enemy that wants to kill your friendship. That other friend's not the enemy. Churches. The person across the room is not the enemy. There's an enemy that wants to destroy the work of the church, but that person that you're struggling with right now is not the enemy. We are in this together, fighting for holiness, fighting for endurance. Why? Because the enemy strikes out and because we're called to turn the cheek and protect the weak, and so we will fight for holiness and we will fight for endurance. Now, where does all this lead that we've talked about with Holy War? Well, it leads straight to heaven and hell. It leads straight to the reality that when you talk about heaven and you talk about hell and the way that those realities function in Scripture, heaven and hell are the result and the end of holy war in Scripture. That what God is doing from the Garden of Eden, through the Tower of Babel, through the book of Joshua, through David and Goliath, through the Babylonians, through the Romans, all the way to the book of Revelation, is he is saying, I am good, just, merciful, patient, but I'm also sovereign and powerful, and I will deal with sin. And so you build up your empire, and you find yourself cut off from the things of God, or you raise the white flag and say, I give up, I will live for you and your kingdom, and you find salvation, and you find hope. I put two parables on your notes. We only have time for one this morning. One is out of Matthew 22, and I encourage you to go back and, and look at that. I want to skip to Luke chapter 16, though. I want us to finish with this parable from Luke chapter 16 to see the, one of the ways that Jesus uh, deals with this. Both, both of these stories that I gave you there on your notes have to do with parables that Jesus told to make sense. Um, of, of heaven and hell. We're going to read the one about the rich man and Lazarus that comes from Luke 16, starting in verse 19. So Luke 16, starting in verse 19, here's what it says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's a great, great word. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice in verse 24, he's still treating Lazarus as a servant. There's no repentance here. He still thinks Lazarus is just another one of his servants. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You had your empire. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Obvious reference to the resurrection all over that verse right there. Verse 31, He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
you find Jesus showing this reality that those who have given themselves to the empires of this world will find themselves cut off from the blessings of God. Not because God's a monster, but because God is constantly at work to protect his people and he will deal with sin. He will deal with evil. He will separate that from the things of this world and he will protect and bless his children. Where does holy war end up in the Bible? Well, it ends up in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's not what the book of Joshua is doing. It's not what the New Testament's doing. Not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The empires of this world will come to an end. God has a plan for his people. It's a plan for holiness and endurance. And one day it will result in heaven or hell. Is God a monster that's come to condemn and judge? No, he sent his son because he loves the world. And he is calling you to repentance. He is calling you to salvation. And he is calling you to give your life to the things of his kingdom. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to sing a final song here in just a moment. During that final song, we're going to pass around our offering plates. We're going to turn in our prayer cards. We're going to pray Don't just get ready to go home. Say, God, have I given myself fully to you? What does it mean to live for your kingdom? Have you found yourself caught up in the empires of this world? You're living to hold on to your identity, your possession, or have you really given your life fully to the Lord? Use this time. I'm up here at the front. I would love to pray for you. Pray right where you are. Respond to the Lord. We're going to sing this song. We're finished singing this song. We'll be dismissed. Father, we come to you right now. And Father, we have, we have purposely trever, tried to cover a lot of ground this morning in Scripture, seeing the way that the Bible is not a random con- collection of stories. David and Goliath that we learned as a kid isn't just a random Bible story. It is the Holy War story that helps us make sense of what you're doing from Genesis to Revelation. And Father, we admit that we live in a world that is about building up empires, And we have to be so careful because that empire can hit so close to home at times. And instead, God, we come before you declaring that you are king of kings. You are Lord of lords. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And we want to put that on display through our lives and through our church. God, I pray that if there are people here who have been living in rebellion against you, that in their hearts they would raise the white flag, they would give up, they would put their hands out before you and say, God, I need your mercy, I need your love, I need your salvation. God, as we sing this song, as we give our offering, as we turn in those prayer cards, we give ourselves to you and then we go from this place to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.